Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, as Election Day approaches here in Ontario, we analyze this week in politics with John Best, the founder of the Bay Observer. Do Canadians think democracy is on the decline globally? Interesting results from Abacus Data. And it's a good day as the Canadian Football League and its players have reached a collective bargaining agreement. We'll chat with Justin Dunk from Three Down Nation about that. All coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Also next week, of course, next Thursday, it's Election Day here in the province of Ontario. And uh, the leaders of Ontario's main political parties will be campaigning largely in the voter-rich Greater Toronto-Hamilton area over the next few days, right up until Election Day. Emily Javesky has details for us. Progressive Conservative leader Doug Ford, who's seeking to hold on to the Premier's office, will be speaking in Oakville today and is set to hold a rally in Kitchener tonight. NDP leader Andrea Horvath heads first to East Toronto, then to the Hamilton region and later to Mississauga, with a stop in Paris, Ontario along the way. Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca will be in Mississauga to discuss his party's plan to oppose a new highway promised by the Tories before heading to Brampton. Green Party leader Mike Schreiner will be making a climate announcement in Hamilton before he also heads to Brampton. Ontario's election is set for June 2nd. Emily Javesky, The Canadian Press, Toronto. So we're into the home stretch right now, and uh, we want to talk about polling. We want to talk about voter turnout, which is always an issue in elections like this, and uh, what they're saying and who's saying it. And to do that, uh, please to welcome for our, our usual Friday session about Ontario politics, John Best, who is the uh, publisher of the Bay Observer. Uh, John, pleasure to have you back on the program. Hope you're doing well these days. I am. Good morning, Bill. Good to see you and hear you again. As we head into this, the, the, the polling here is, is interesting, I find. Not unusual for an incumbent government, of course, to hold a lead. Uh, you know, they do have a track record, and they did get elected with a huge majority. Uh, but this hasn't wavered much at all uh, for the last little while. Even when, well, even the debate, of course, the English language debate a little while ago uh, was had. That, that usually causes some kind of change. People impressed with one party leader and maybe not as impressed with something else, and you see a shift. But the, this 8 to 10 point lead that the, the PC seem to be enjoying right now has been pretty consistent, hasn't it? It really has. And I think it's a function of the fact that, quite frankly, this has been kind of a boring election. Um, people, uh, I think, are preoccupied with so many things uh, right now. And you've got this overriding COVID situation that, you know, it really isn't at a crisis stage at this particular point. But you know, people are thinking, uh, you know, the fact that the COVID is is hopefully uh, tamping down a little bit, people's thoughts are turning to, you know, holiday plans uh, later this year. And it just, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's spring. Uh, I think people are, you know, you just feel good because the weather is starting to get good. And I think those are all, in, if you're in an election mode, it's, uh, those are, they're good distractions, but they are distractions. There's another element to this, too. I, I can really even recall a conversation you and I had it's about a year ago, uh, and things were not going well, as you may recall. You know, the Omicron wave and, and the numbers of hospitalizations, et cetera, et cetera. It was a pretty dire circumstance then. And and the, the consensus among the political pundits and, and people that would call into the show, the voters, in other words, uh, was, boy, we're not going to forget this, this way, you know, this wave, and we're not going to forget how Ford and the government reacted to this and the shutdowns and all this other stuff. I, I think they've forgotten. Uh, as you say, it, it's better than it was a year ago, but we're still in pandemic mode here. Uh, and it's not an issue in this election. And that's kind of surprising. 
It's not an issue. Um, uh, they have forgotten. Well, they haven't forgotten, but it, but they're not factoring in, in into the to the election their their election intentions, at least according to the polls we're seeing. Uh, I mean, the other thing is, uh, I I think it would be hard to make a case that. Uh, another political party would have done significantly better in handling the COVID. Uh, not not to say that there weren't mistakes, there weren't false steps uh, along the way, but, you know, let's face it, the, not only the government of Ontario, but the world was really making this up as they went along. Uh, we started out with a, a, a disease we knew very little about and for which there was no, absolutely no treatment, no vaccine. Uh, and we moved through that to a point where there was vaccine and, and now there's even treatments. So uh, it's, you know, I, I, I think uh, a voter looking at it would, would say, well, it wasn't perfect, but I, I don't think you can make political hay out of it, quite frankly. Well, a year ago, they wanted to. I mean, you know, all three opposition parties, uh, we we're going to say they're going to hammer away at this. But you're right. I mean, as, as you and I talked about at that time, uh, it, the stores are open again. Uh, you know, we can go where we want. We can fly if we want, if you can afford it, uh, and all this other stuff. And I'm not, I, I agree with you. I don't think we've forgotten about it. Uh, I think right now, and, and, and we've had polling that indicates this right now, we're more worried about, about trying to live from day to day now. The cost of living has skyrocketed. And, and most economists not, uh, that we talked to, none of them ever predicted things were going to be like this. I, I think a lot of us had the mindset that, you know what, once the doors are open again and the numbers start to go down, uh, you know, we're going to go spend all that money that we haven't been able to spend for two years and we're all going to live happily ever after. Uh, nobody saw supply chain issues. Nobody talked about the cost of living and inflation. And, and we're right in the middle of that now. Well, and, and also a war in Ukraine that has uh, exacerbated uh, the, both the supply chain issues, food shortages, all of that stemming from that conflict. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, things are, things are tough and challenging, but uh, it's hard. They're almost world events, and uh, they don't really drill down to looking like they're Ontario government events. So, I, 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 you know, there's stuff going on, but it's, uh, it seems to be far, the causes seem to be far away. Let's talk a little bit about what's going to happen in the next few days. Uh, the clip we just played from Emily Javeski there, the leaders are going to spend a lot of time in, in southern Ontario, especially in the Toronto-Hamilton area, and that includes Brampton and Mississauga, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this is the voter rich. I think there's something like, what, 50 or 60 seats, I guess, available in that whole area. Uh, right. And that can turn an election in a heartbeat. I mean, you win that area, you win the election pretty much. Yeah, and, and we're at the phase now in the campaign where uh, you won't see leaders campaigning anywhere where they don't think they have a chance of winning. There'll be, there'll be no drop-ins for uh, candidates that are, that are out of the race. So this is where we start seeing, you know, where they really think their uh, best chances lie. And uh, no surprise that they're all going to stay in southern Ontario. Uh, Mike Schreiner has, has only once or twice ventured out of Guelph. He's, he's got to keep that seat no matter what. He's trying to get somebody elected up in the Perry Sound area. But uh, essentially, everybody's going to be sticking and shoring up. Uh, if they're within a couple of points, you're going to see them in those kind of ridings. And, um, and, of course, you saw Doug Ford here last night. He was campaigning in Flamborough-Glanbrook, where, where they look like they're, they're probably going to hold on to that seat. Um, 
Hamilton East Stony Creek is a, is a seat they have a shot at that they haven't had a shot at in 20 years. Uh, but you won't see him campaigning in Hamilton Center for sure. So, yeah, they're, they're all uh, shoring up uh, where they think they can win now. That's that's got to be kind of heart wrenching for the candidates of, of all the political parties right now. You know, if the leader kind of pretends you don't exist this final week, that means you have, they think you've got much of a shot at this, or you're home and cooled out. And I, and I know there are some people in some of those writings that are like that. But it's it's interesting the political spin that gets put on this stuff. Though a story in the Toronto Star earlier this week that they found a leaked document uh, that was basically the liberal strategist saying, you know what, if uh, we can still win this thing. You know, we just have to win this. We have to do this. And now in today's paper, we're finding if the NDP have a similar situation that got leaked to the media uh, that, oh, no, we're still in play here. We can still form the government. We can still be the premier. Uh, is, is that wishful thinking? Uh, you know, trying to keep boy up the spirits of the uh, of the, you know, the, the people on the front lines right now to keep them going? Because they got a feeling, I would think, pretty disappointed when they look at the numbers here. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's wishful thinking or if it's science fiction, but, um, the, you know, it, it, it kind of surprised me to see Robert Benzie, uh, you know, somebody that's been around covering politics. I know he works for the Star, but, um, you know, to, to take the bait on that and the NDP doing a ditto on, on another leak poll today, um, we'll, we'll know soon enough, Bill, but uh, I... I yeah, I mean, if, if you're within five points, you're, are, are you within striking distance? Yes, but do you have any momentum is the, the real issue. And, and I don't frankly see, well, frankly, I don't see anybody having much momentum. I mean, even Doug Ford is, is you know, he looks like he's got roughly the, the polling numbers that he had going into the writ. So there, I, I don't see momentum really. Uh, in any of the parties, but certainly Del Duca, I, I don't see anything there, and uh, not much, frankly, with uh, with Andrea either. They and and you know, in fairness to her, she was she was sidelined. She lost five or six days with with COVID, which certainly didn't help. But uh, to say that there's any kind of a surge going on anywhere, I don't see it. And and that's what we were looking for as well. That, that you know that kind of kick right near the end there, and we saw that happen. Uh, well, when they uh, they booted David Peterson and Bob Ray won that election back in in the early nineties, uh, you know they they were disenchanted with with Peterson for a variety of reasons. They didn't want to go back to the Tories because they just booted them a, a, a little while before that. And I got to tell you, John, I, I was doing this job, of course, back in those days too. And we just noticed about four or five days before the election when we were kind of doing our informal polling, uh, the consensus seemed to be, you know what, I'm I'm sick of both those guys. I'm going to give the MDP a shot. And that, that kind of came out of the blue. And, and, you know, that party under Bob Ray, uh, they put on the sprint there uh, down the home stretch and, and came not way back, but, I mean, they overtook everybody else and, of course, ended up with the government. Uh, I don't see that happening. You're right. I don't think anybody's got momentum right now because uh, what the opposition players talk about, and, and I know Del Duke has mentioned this and so has Horvath and, and Mike Schreiner, they wanted this to be a change election. In other words, we got to get those guys out of there. They've done a terrible job. I don't, Ontarians don't want to change government right now. We, you know, as I said, I guess we have to vote because, you know, it's time to. It, 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 the time for this guy is, is up right now. But they're not, there's nothing there. There's nothing to say, yeah, there's no dynamic leader here that's going to capture people's imagination. Uh, there's no issue that people want to get their teeth into, except, as you said, uh, the economic issues right now, which are real problems for an awful lot of people. But I think there's an understanding here that, this is a global picture that we're dealing with, and, and they're not putting the finger of blame on anybody right now. 
Well, and change elections don't normally happen at the end of a four-year term. They, they typically, as they did in the last election, they happen at the end of a, like a 13-year term where, where people are sick and tired uh, simply from the familiarity aspect. So I think, uh, and, and, and I don't say this in a partisan way, I, I think Ford surprised people. He, his first year was rough, uh, and it looked like a, a kind of a Mike Harris thing. He fired his chief of staff, which which pleased everybody inside the party and out. Uh, and then things seemed to turn around. Uh, then COVID hit, and and I think uh, you know only the most jaded would say that he he didn't rise to the occasion. He 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 did grow in the job. Uh, he he faced the challenge, um, and the one thing he displayed that um, Justin Trudeau and so many others struggle for is authenticity. Uh, he, he may not be the, the most slick individual and he may need a three ring binder when he goes into a debate, but uh, he's the only one of the four leaders that doesn't look like an idiot when he's wearing a hard hat and boots. And uh, there's, a, there's a sense of that uh, going on. Um, and when he says he cares, uh, he's, let's put it this way, he's more believable than most people in his role saying that. So, well, the other the, the other story here, uh, is, you know, there's been some internal polling that's been leaked too that says if within the NDP and Liberal parties, uh, there's a great amount of, of unease about their leaders. And uh, Del Duke is still relatively new, but the Liberals are kind of having you know buyer's remorse on. And and as we know, uh, Andrea Horvath is how many elections is this now? Uh, Four. You know, how, how much longer are they going to say? Oh, well, well, we'll keep bucking along with what we got here. At some point, they got to say it's, maybe we need to move on here. And I'm not suggesting that that's going to happen, but it's there's there's a lot of rumblings there. People aren't doing it publicly, but we're hearing a lot of stories about that. Well, and and the, I think the poll you're referring to is the one uh, where uh, even people that are intending to vote Liberal and uh, NDP, when asked who do you think's going to win, they they think that Ford's going to win. Yeah. Uh, and, and you, you know, you don't need the PhD in political science. Uh, the polls have been saying that right from the get-go. Nothing much has changed. The debate didn't change anything. Uh, all the scandals that, that pop up normally in elections are, are the typical ones. Uh, you know, I mean, they all, nobody, uh, this business about using uh, uh, constituency uh, money for clothing and personal expenses. I mean, everybody's in on that game. So uh, it's really tough to make an issue out of it. And, and constituency money, by the way, uh, is, is money that's donated. It's not uh, typically government money. So uh, th that's not entirely true because they do get reimbursed a, a certain amount. But bottom line is uh, every party uh, does that. And, uh, and that's, that's the extent of the scandal. I mean, Bill, this election is so boring that we're not even getting the stories about people's signs being destroyed, because, <laughs> partly because I, I think just the population generally are really, I don't want to tell my neighbors who I'm voting for, and, and I think there's more and more of that. Yeah, I've noticed driving around town, I don't see nearly as many lawn signs as, as we have in previous elections, so... Uh, it's up to us now. I mean, it's uh, the voters' turn now. You know, we got to turn out. Advanced polling, I think, ends in the next day or so, and then, of course, the election. Uh, and the numbers seem pretty strong here. So I'm sure we got lots to talk about next week on the program. As always, John, thanks so much for this, and uh, have a great weekend. And we'll talk next Friday. My pleasure, Bill.
Take care. John Best from the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Are you optimistic? You know, you're a glasses half full kind of guy, person, and because it's getting a little bleak here for an awful lot of people. Uh, and uh, our good friends at uh, Abacus Data have done some uh, some surveying about just our attitudes right now. Uh, about democracy. I mean, it, it can be disheartening when you see what's going on in Ukraine, uh, in other European, Eastern European cities anyway. There's a war raging, but an awful lot of internal conflict going on uh, just about all over the place. Is Just how is it impacting us? Because you know, that kind of a mindset, I think, you know, tells us a lot about just how we're coping with the, an awful lot of challenges these days. So to get some insight into the numbers and uh, the responses we gave, uh, Abacus. Uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program, Oksana Kischuk, who is the Director of Strategy and Insights with Abacus Data. Uh, Oksana, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Let's let's talk a little bit about our attitudes right now. Uh, democracy is retreating and declining. Uh, almost half the people seem to agree with a statement like that. Is uh, Did that shock you? But I mean, the in the world are, are sort of tending towards that that is the answer that is, is probably true, if, if there's some truth to this. Um, so I think that the number maybe isn't surprising, but maybe more disappointing than anything else in that um, half say it's retreating and declining, a, a third say they don't know, but very few are saying that democracy is advancing and growing. And so I think... Um, I think as a society, we'd like to think that we're sort of progressing forward as a nation and as a globe and, and all of that. And that doesn't seem to be the case when it comes to democracy right now. Well, it's interesting, I guess, when all the things are going badly for us, and there's a, an mm-hmm. argument to be made that that's happening right now, it just it seems to impact our outlook on just about everything, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think that sort of pessimistic nature about, about what's happening around the world, I think, is, is really interesting. I think there's a lot of sort of uh, research out there about what Canadians think of democracy at home, but it's interesting to sort of put that lens on on how we see the rest of the world and how that impacts um, our sort of belief on how things, the direction of the world is headed, which, um, spoilers, as many people think it's not headed in the right direction, um, and it impacts sort of our, our choices on, on sort of issues as well about what we want Canada to do and, and sort of step up and, and support that decline. Well, it's fascinating because when you ask and i think your point's well taken a lot of the time we're kind of you know focused on our own life what's happening in my backyard what's happening with my job what's happening at my kid's school whatever the case might be but we've mm-hmm. been impacted by an awful lot of the stuff over the last year and a half two years haven't mm-hmm. we Exana? uh you know the two michaels in china and that you know that kind of drew us to that end of the world okay what's going on there and there's some pretty horrible stories about the uyghurs and, and about you know illegal incarcerations you got the mm-hmm. war in Eastern Europe right now. We've got runaway yeah. inflation. Uh, and we tie that together, you know, economy and everything else and, and democracy and freedom, et cetera. Uh, if one is under attack, we all seem to, to feel that everything is under attack. Yeah, I think it's it's really tied to, to the, the idea of trust. And do we have trust in our institutions and trust in our governments? And I think trust in, in those things is, is certainly higher in Canada than our Canadians' trust in, in institutions elsewhere. But I think um, the more and more Canadians see it declining and, and sort of the intensity that they see it declining, the more likely that is to have an impact on um, maybe our trust in, in world institutions, global institutions, and then how Canada is sort of responding to that with our own. And, and you talked in the, the numbers I saw about this too about some of the world events which are coloring that, and and, and it goes back to the insurrection, of course, in, in the U.S. Capitol back in January sixth uh, of mm-hmm. last year, uh, and and the things that are happening right now. Uh, it's and it, it's it's one of these things that says you know is it is it really dem- democratic? I mean, even our neighbors to the south, I suppose, you know, the, yeah, they're de- democracy, maybe the biggest one in the world, 
But then we hear daily stories about you know state governments passing you know laws about voter suppression and these you know this group can't vote or this guy we're going to restrict that, uh, and mm-hmm. and that's attacking our basic freedoms and that, that that's an assault on democracy as we see it. Yeah, I think as as much as those those sort of situations don't impact our day to day sort of voting abilities and things like that, they certainly sort of come in to question and, and make Canadians question whether our systems are strong and and what that means if other countries that Canada is, is working with and trade and export and global economy and all of that and, and just how interconnected everyone is. I think um, kind of the other piece of this is Canadians really believe that the world is connected. And so if, if sort of there's a trend of, of growing instability and democracy um, and we're connected to that, what does that mean for, for our lives? We, we asked whether or not um, but those who say democracies in decline think it has an impact on their lives and only a quarter say it has a lot but most acknowledge that there is some impact on their lives at home um, with a lot of these issues so really interesting to sort of see that perceptions and, and ties with with issues that that maybe aren't happening in our own backyards but are certainly impacting um, our, our outlook on the world and, and what we think might happen in our own backyards with advocates, you guys are very thorough uh, in, in trying to get the mood and, and you know our, our sense of what's right and what's wrong with what's going on. How does this break down demographically? Because I know you've done that research as well. Yeah, so in terms of um, sort of understanding whether democracy is declining or not, kind of back to that basic question, um, younger Canadians are, are most optimistic that democracy is advancing, which I guess is a bit of a silver lining that that next generation is, is there to sort of make sure that that continues. Um, men are a little bit more optimistic than women, um, and those with more formal education are sort of less likely to be unsure, um, so it's sort of more of committed to a position, but do sort of see some sort of uh, decline in democracy. So some interesting trends there, I think, especially with the younger generation um, and, and sort of that, we see that um, older Canadians are, are more um, committed to sort of upholding and promoting democracy, whereas younger Canadians are, are more confident that, um, I guess, kind of what's the situation it, that is occurring um, is is not too bad and, and will continue on a positive trend. So some interesting sort of, I think, perspectives on, on how many world issues you've lived through um, in that as well. Yeah, uh, if the more of these things you experience, I guess the more cynical we can get in situations like this. But I, I was really fascinated. I'm glad you brought it up. I was going to ask you about the, that one element. Uh, for those who don't, aren't sure or for those who think the democracy is in decline, they're not looking for alternatives. Uh, they just say, no, we got to fix this. Uh, you know, that's that's the goal. And maybe we've slipped a little bit, but we've got to work harder at democracy. Uh, I know there's always going to be, you know, fringe elements that are going to say, no, throw everything out and let's start over again. Uh, but, mm-hmm. but that doesn't seem to be the mindset. I think I get the sense and look at some of these numbers, Oksana, that, yeah, the, those who realize this and acknowledge this are, are worried about it, not just saying, okay, let's give up on it. Yeah, yeah, I think there's certainly that sort of nugget of of people that are sort of isolationists and that this is kind of the way the world is going and I'm going to turn off from it. But from the most part, um, that's not the case. You're right. And that we also ask what sort of aspect of foreign policy is is sort of a great pride point for you as a Canadian and promoting democracy and human rights um, around the world is at the top of the list. So when it comes to how Canadians identify uh, with Canada on the world stage, democracy is kind of nestled right in there and, and uh, sort of lined right up with how we see our position. And so I think with, with that sort of pride piece in, in mind as well, that, that people are really wanting to make sure we do something about this as Canadians and as Canada um, and, and for the world as well. Uh, and we've asked about the uh, the age demographic situation like this. So well, let's, let's go um, gender, male to female. Women tend to be, in, in most studies I've seen anyway, seem to be more optimistic, uh, more in tune with what's going on. What, what do your numbers show you about this? 
Yeah, so when we look at sort of foreign policy preference, so um, promoting and defending democracy or, or focusing more domestically, we'll just kind of go to that question. Um, men are, are more sort of more actually opinionated, um, more likely to say promoting and defending democracy and also more likely to say focusing domestically while, while women are sort of more likely to be on the fence. A third of women don't necessarily have a preference either way. Um, but I think it's interesting to sort of see that, that breakdown about whether or not um, that issue is, is something that's sort of going to the forefront of the minds of, of men's and women. And I also think um, the issue of democracy and sort of that, what that term means um, can mean a lot of different things for different people as well. Do they want our government to get involved? Because I know you talked about, you know, the, the pride that we have, for instance, in the Canadian military. And uh, you got a lot of responses about that, too, that that maybe, uh, you know, Canadians feel as if uh, it's our government's responsibility to shore up democracy and, and especially what's going on, I guess, in Ukraine now is maybe uh, the most obvious example, but they, they want mm -hmm. us to take an active role in this. Yeah, so when we look at that sort of pride list, um, sort of the issues and approaches to, to take on, on the foreign sort of stage, um, armed forces are kind of sort of lower on the list of, of sources for pride, but I think they can be tied to support um, for things like promoting democracy and human rights, which does kind of chart the top of the list, and then supporting close alliances with other democratic nations. I think um, armed forces can certainly come into play there. Um, and so I think the way that sort of Canadians are, are maybe seeing that armed forces component is really about um, upholding the values that we see in Canada and, and we want to make sure are still upheld in, in other countries as well. And, and uh, I just want to remind our listeners, uh, the, the data here that we're talking about, uh, this study with Abacus Data uh, and Oksana Kischuk from Abacus, uh, th this is a global picture we're looking at, and with it's not necessarily directed at our governments here in this country, but what's happening internationally. And I, what I'm getting the sense from, from a lot of the numbers you're showing here is that we are, are more aware of what's happening globally now than maybe, maybe we were a couple of years ago. Uh, we're seeing that though those issues that used to uh, oftentimes resonate with us, so saying, yeah, well, that's so halfway around the world, no big deal here. Uh, it is a big deal here, you know, pandemics and, you know, where where these things come from and, and the impact globally it's having on economies and things like that. I, I think we're paying more attention to this stuff now, aren't we? Yeah, I think I totally agree. I think at the beginning of the pandemic, um, there was this sort of sense that we realized how sort of interconnected the world was, but yet we still really wanted to kind of protect our own and protect our own country and sort of look inwards and, and make sure that that was the focus. But I think now that we're sort of coming out of this and we're realizing that maybe COVID isn't going away completely for quite some time, we're becoming more comfortable with this new reality. And and certainly all of these issues that we've talked about too, all these events that have happened have made us sort of stop and, and pivot outwards and, and sort of reflect on just how interconnected we are and, and what that really means for us back at home too. Uh, and there is a call to action for our government, and it, uh, I, you know, I don't want to slide over that and just say, "Oh no, we're we're, we're happy with what's going on." Uh, I, the numbers here on one of the charts uh, indicate that we want our government to get involved. You know, when we see you know bad government, when we see insurrections, when we see uh, the sorts mm -hmm. of things that have gone on right now, authoritarianism, we want Canada to stand up against that sort of stuff. Yeah, so we asked um, Canadians, do you want Canada to work with allies to sort of prevent authoritarian regimes? And, and even if it means spending more and sending more Canadian troops, um, or do you want to focus more internally, sort of that external internal conversation? And half of, of Canadians say that they want um, Canada to work with allies. And then people um, remaining are, are split um, between focusing internally and don't have clear views either way. So the majority of, of Canadians really are saying that we want Canada to step up. We're ready to sort of 
uh, face externally again and, and provide the resources and supports to, to people around the world that really deserve it, that we can see in, in news every day um, that, that aren't getting sort of the same kind of support from their government that, that we are lucky enough to have. So what should government read into this? I mean, is, this seems to be a template for what they need to do going forward here. And I don't just mean just so they can all get reelected, but to reflect the mood of the people these days. Uh, you know, they, they seem to want us to be a world leader and a, world, a player in the world. And, uh, and, you know, we've got NATO and we're a member of that and other things like this. But, you know, the, Canada used to have a reputation for stepping in you know, as peacemakers and, and uh, offering aid. And I, I get the sense that what Canadians are saying through the numbers you guys found here is they want more of that from government. Uh, we're not thinking inwardly. We're thinking globally right now. I, I, I'm getting the sense that we're saying, you know what, we could be and should be doing more than we're doing. Yeah, for sure. I think that sort of sentiment of Canadians are peacemakers and, and Canadians are sort of there to step up and really promote um, human rights and democracy and all of those issues certainly hasn't gone away um, throughout the pandemic. I think it was something that was kind of there before and is, is very much there now. And so I think governments need to maybe sort of turn an eye to, to some of these issues a little bit more and, and understand that Canadians are thinking about them. They're thinking about the government's role in these issues and they're fairly decided on what they think the government's role should be. So taking an eye to sort of some of those numbers in particular and really making sure that sort of the decisions that they're making and sort of the information that they're sharing is really reflecting um, what Canadians want to see and hear. Do you consider this a change in attitude, a, a, a dramatic change from the way things were? I mean, there, there seemed to be a sense of lethargy among Canadian voters for the longest time. And, and uh, the, the attitudes reflected in your numbers here seem to indicate that, you know, we got to get back on the horse now. We, yeah, the economy stinks right now, but we can fix that if we put our minds to it. You know, yes, well, we've got to be worried about pandemics, but we can do something about that, too. In other words, we want to get back up there and get back into the game. Yeah, I think our opinion on, on how things are heading, like our opinion on many things, has been on a bit of a roller coaster over the last few years. And I think um, sort of pandemic has really sort of allowed us to globally and, and then internally. And, and same with inflation. I think we've really looked sort of internally. But a lot of sort of the more that these issues are in the news, um, even for internal issues like like prices and, and costs and of goods and things like that, um, we're really realizing that, that these are global problems. It's not just tied to Canada and it's not just Canada's sort of economy. And so there's another sort of hint there for Canadians that um, global issues are issues for Canadians. And I think people are starting to sort of um, realize that mindset or sort of be renewed about um, their thoughts on, on just the interconnectedness of everything. Yeah, and they want us to be a player. And yeah, we've got the G7 and the G20. Uh, that's all and good. But you know, they don't want us just to be members of those organizations. They want us to be active members and, and mm -hmm. leaders in those organizations. Yeah, yeah, I think the sort of the time of, of focusing internally and the time of sort of letting um, other countries and other people step up is, is coming to an end, uh, at least for what Canadians want, and that they want to sort of see the government um, take a step up and, and really get involved and promote the values that we, we say we promote. Well, it's fascinating uh, reading because uh, it gives us a real sense of, of where we are right now. And I, as, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, I, I'm kind of buoyed by these numbers. I know that some people are still kind of not where they are and they're kind of skeptical about the future. Uh, but this tells me that there's a, a positive attitude and, and, you know, we need to step up and can step up uh, when it comes to global issues like this, whether it's pandemics or insurrections and in governments like we're seeing in Eastern Europe. Uh, that we want to be there. And uh, that's that's one of the takeaways I would get uh, from this. Mm -hmm. And I hope governments do too. That Yeah, don't sit back and be meek about the things that are going on here. Be aggressive in coming, finding solutions. So I feel better, Exana, than, than I did. You know, <laughs> after, so once again, you've made my weekend, okay? So, uh, but it's <laughs> good. And you, guys, <laughs> you guys, you, you always, 
you know, find out where we are right now. And the follow-up questions are so important. And I know mm -hmm. it takes a lot of time to go through these surveys, and uh, uh, but it does give us, I think, a pretty clear picture on where we're going. So good stuff mm -hmm. on this. Uh, as always, thanks so much for your time today. Pleasure talking with you. Have a great weekend, Oksana. Thanks so much. You as well. Okay, Oksana Kiszczek, who is the Director of Strategy and Insights for Abacus Data. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We had some concerns earlier this week about uh, whether or not the CFL was going to actually play. Uh, we know that there was a tentative agreement some days ago now between the league and uh, the player representatives, of course, on the negotiating committee. And we thought that was settled because they recommended uh, acceptance of this, but it has to go to a vote, of course, uh, with the, the union membership right across the league. Well, that came down about midweek, and the players said, no, they don't want the deal, uh, which put things into a pretty negative light. We were pretty concerned about that for the longest time. Uh, and they set midnight last night uh, as the deadline. If there was no deal, then that was it. They were walking out of training camp, and it, it could have been an ugly situation, very ugly situation. And this is a league that needs some consistency. Uh, to draw fans into their pay tickets, money to go and sit in the stands and, and to cheer on their team and, and to support the team. Well, uh, the good news is that they, they got themselves a deal. Uh, late yesterday, the CFL and CFL Players Association have now reached a new tentative collecting bargaining agreement. And uh, just to prove that you can get things done if you really want to, uh, not only did they reach a deal, but the players have already ratified it. So it's game on uh, as, as far as the CFL is concerned this year. Uh, and that for the Tiger Cat fans, of course, means tomorrow night uh, they host the uh, the Montreal Alouettes at Tim Horton Field. So what went on here? How did they get the deal? And what does it mean for this league going forward, especially? Uh, to answer all of those questions, uh, great to bring back to the show Justin Dunk. Justin is the founder of Three Down Nation, and of course, sports anchor at CHEH News. Uh, Justin, a uh, great football background that you have personally and your passion for the game, but there's, there's a little lawyer in you, too, to try to decipher exactly what's going on here. Uh, the, the good news is the deal is signed. Uh, let's let's start to unpack some of the stuff here, uh, and we'll start with the player ratio, the the, the, the Canadian uh, versus international, American, etc. Different people use different terminologies, but was that one of the sticking points in these negotiations? That was one of the major sticking points because the Canadians didn't want to see the ratio diminished for nationals as they're dubbed in the CFL. They felt like if that was chipped away in this CBA, that the next one, it would go down even more. So that was one of the main ones, but the other probably bigger one for the entire membership, Americans included, was the ratification bonus of $1.25 million. Yeah, that was kind of a last-minute thing. When the deal got turned down, that got slapped onto the table, and that seemed to be the thing that swayed an awful lot of people. What, what does that mean for each individual player? That means that each individual player who makes a roster, I believe, will get just over $2,000. And that's just there, cash up front, bingo. Thanks for coming out. Thanks for making the team. Uh, and <laughs> 2000 bucks is 2000 bucks. If somebody offered that for me, that's fine. Uh, the minimum has gone up in this contract, too, hasn't it, Justin? Yeah, it has a little bit. It will bump up, and I think the key there is that the salary cap has also gone up. In the last CBA, the minimum salary went up, but the cap, didn't go up a lot. It went to 65000 as the minimum. Now we'll see that minimum climb to get over $70,000 as the years progress in this deal. And the salary cap will step up, you know, in and around $100,000 for a handful of the years of this deal. So that's that's good news for people, for instance, coming out of college and getting drafted and going on to a career here. Uh, you know, a few extra bucks in their pocket, which is going to be fine. I, I, do you have any information about how many people in this league are making minimum? Uh, because there's a lot of people that aren't, too. 
Yeah, I mean, it depends sort of where you come in at in terms of what you've done. A lot of the American rookies in this league will be on a minimum salary contract with potential playtime incentives and bonus incentives for awards like All-Stars in the division and All-Stars mm-hmm. at the CFL level. That's pretty normal around the league. But in terms of the average salaries back a few years ago, it was in and around $90,000 for Americans, and I think Canadians were just over $80,000. So the majority of players are above minimum, but usually your rookie Americans will come in at that minimum rate. Uh, there's something else here that I found. Uh, this is this has been settled, of course, the whole contract. Uh, but it's about uh, players who, when their contract is over, go down to the States, maybe try out for a team, maybe even play like Delvin Bro did, of course, some years ago for the Tiger Cats. Uh, I was n- uh, not aware of the fact that I guess when they come back up here, they, they have to sign a minimum contract, or at least they did. Uh, that's been tossed out right now, so they can negotiate their deal if they want to come back into the CFL. Yeah, it's a little different in the past. Well, recent past i should say players essentially had an nfl option in their contract after every single year so that was something that the players wanted to keep because of course this is no shot at the cfl but if you make the nfl you're going to be making much more money even if you're on a practice roster in the nfl you can make over a hundred thousand dollars us if you're there for the entire season for a lot of players that's better money partly because it's American dollars too, right? So that could change going forward, but the players wanted to keep that flexibility of if they perform well in the CFL, have a chance to cash in in the NFL. Okay, here's where it gets a little more intricate, and I wanted you to shed some light on this. I want to swing back to the the player ratio. And and I just want people to understand as I read the the document, I'm going right off your webpage here on 3 Down Nation, uh, the the stuff that you've uncovered on this, uh, that changes and can change within the game. In other words, you can substitute uh, an American for a Canadian, for a national uh, during the game. But there's limits to that now, aren't there? There are. You can substitute a nationalized American, I guess is what we're calling it now, who has either been with the team for three years or in the league for five for up to 49% of the snaps. Now, that is going to have to be closely monitored by the league to ensure that teams are not going over that number because a lot of the Canadians actually feel like with this rule, it's the league trying to get more Americans on the field more often and that they're trying to drive out some of the nationals. So the league is going to have to pay close attention to it. The Hamilton Tiger Cats actually last year were fined for breaking the ratio rules. So that shows you that the CFL was paying close attention at that time. They need to continue to do that with this 49% snap count rule. Uh, and I think it's two Americans can do this, but they can't, like you can't put two guys on defense. Uh, maybe one on offense, one on defense. Uh, and we're talking about substitutions within the game here. So uh, you're right, there's going to have to be a lot more scrutiny, I would think, to make sure that everybody's being compliant. Certainly, they're going to have to watch over that really well, especially in-game, because it's one thing to find a team, like the Ticats, let's say, for example, after the game is over and the result has been produced, right? Especially if it's a win for that team that does not abide by these rules. So in-game, it needs to be tracked very closely by the league and its officials. Uh, one of the other contentious points, which I see is resolved here, is, uh, is players... Uh, with- you know, padded practices. In other words, an awful lot of them, of course, I guess under the previous agreement, I mean, practice was was, was shorts, basically, and there was no hitting, tackling, per se, uh, in a lot of the practices. I know the league wanted that to come back, 
And it seems as if the players have at least agreed to that. How do, how do they feel about this? I mean, you know, long-term health and, and safety benefits are always at front of mind for guys that play professional sports, anybody who plays professional sports uh, at, at any level. Um, and you're always worried about getting hurt in practice. You, are, you, know, you don't want to get hurt at all. Um, but this idea of wearing pads, I mean, I remember talking to players in the past about this, and it made them a little nervous. You know, you, you could have a career in, in injury in, in practice, for heaven's sakes, uh, which is why they kind of wanted the idea of just kind of, not walkthroughs necessarily, uh, but not having the, the, the hitting and tackling in practice. It looks like that's coming back right now. Is that a concern for them? Yeah, it was a concern, as you mentioned, for the health and safety angle. It's not going to come back full force, and it had been taken way down in the previous CBH to avoid some of those injuries. And in reality, it helps out the veteran American players or veteran players, sorry, across the board, Canadians, Americans, and you know, might even have some global veterans at this point because if you have non-padded practices, you can't really go full speed and show what you got. So I think mm -hmm. the players are viewing this as, all right, we'll have a few more in here. Maybe it will help the product overall be more crisp, at least to start the season. Yeah, but without the pads on, uh, with my limited knowledge of, you know, high school football, that's fine for quarterbacks and receivers. You know, that, okay, you run your pad and I'll throw you the ball. Uh, but how do you how do you grade linemen in a practice situation like that when they're not really hitting? Uh, you know, do, do you do you know whether or not a guy like Dylan Wynn can be a great pass rusher uh, when you're doing kind of like half speed situations? This is probably going to be better for everybody, isn't it? It should be in terms of grading, and I mean, I would even argue for quarterbacks and receivers that you want to see these guys at full go when they're being tackled, right? It's one thing to throw the ball and catch the ball when you know you're not going to get hit, especially quarterbacks wearing that red jersey in practice. But yeah. when you have the ability to take a shot after you throw the ball, I mean, they're still going to protect quarterbacks in practice, but you want to see those guys under that pressure. That's why the preseason games have so much weight on them. So this can certainly help out some of the practice grading in that aspect. Like you mentioned, a Dylan Wynn or let's say, you know, some of the rookies that are coming in. When there's not pads, you have to just grade them based off their get-off on the defensive line, let's say, or how well they do in a one-on-one -on -one situation. Well, that's not how football is played in the game. It's played 12 on 12. So this should give a better idea in terms of grading, evaluating, making final roster decisions or roster decisions throughout the season. And I think what the league is hoping is that if there's a few more padded practices, that the product overall will be more crisp. And looking at the numbers here, this is, as you say, it's a multi-year deal. Uh, is it tied to the TSN contract that the league has? In other words, the televised game? Because that, that was a long-term deal they signed with TSN. Uh, and I, I know that the Players Association, some of the reps I've talked to over the last little while, off the record they were talking anyway, is they, they want this to coincide with this because when the TSN they they want revenue sharing I mean that 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 seemed to be the the gist of one of the big demands here and I, I don't see a whole lot of detail about that uh, have they been placated on that because I know the initial reaction from the league was wait till the TSN deal is over because we have to negotiate that based on how much money TSN is going to put into the pot here too so how, how did they resolve something like that the players did want flexibility in that regard because they felt like if they get to the end of the TSN contract, which I believe is in five years currently, and the league signs a bigger deal with TSN or has you know multiple television networks in on that and they don't get to share in that revenue, that that wouldn't have been fair. So there is an ability within this CBA for the players to share in that 
increased revenue if it does happen on the television side. So th- that has been addressed then, I know, because I know talking with, uh, well, Pete Tarkowski, of course, uh, was uh, no longer playing, of course, but I was talking to him a couple of months ago about that, and he said that's that's got to be front and center for them. Uh, it, it all comes down to, to revenue, and it all comes down to compensation for your efforts, I guess, on the football field, as, as you've talked about before with us, Justin. I mean, you know, we always think of the, the guys that have been here for 10, 12 years, the Bo Levi Mitchells and everything, but there's an awful lot of other people to play in the Canadian Football League that maybe play for three, four years maximum. And for a variety of reasons, they move on after that. Uh, but you want to know that they're going to be looked after and they're going to you know, make it worth their while. And uh, the other element to this, too, is, is, is that we just talked earlier about health and safety benefits, is extension of, of those benefits, uh, whether it's injuries or, you know, you, you could retire because of a knee injury, for instance. Uh, but they... You, there's still got to be some compensation here and some league responsibility. Uh, you know, when it comes to things like rehab and things of that nature, have they done and addressed that to the to the players' associations' uh, uh, satisfaction? Well, that'll be in the details that come out. Jonathan Hefney is the guy that comes to everybody's mind who has had a terrible time after suffering a horrific injury that ended his playing career, and he's still struggling just to do every day. Players for medical. Or the athlete even taken on the field, but did out of their control from an injury. So I know that was something that was key for the players. And as we find out more details, they'll be on three down nation. And and by the way, that's on the table for every sports league, isn't it? I mean, there was a big story a few years ago in the NFL when they talked about that and uh, concussion syndromes and things of this nature. In other words, uh, injuries that may not be apparent. Uh, and, and they may not mas- manifest themselves until even sometimes after the player retires. Uh, and and that's I know it can get messy, and it, a lot of it's going to be decided in the courts, but it's a major issue. Uh, are the owners going to be happy with this deal? I would imagine the owners would have been happy with the deal when it was tabled. It's the smaller group to get a majority on instead of the players having to vote on it, right? There's hundreds of players, and there's only obviously... Uh, well, I shouldn't say just nine owners, but there's nine teams and the Board of Governors will be made up of one representative from each of those franchises. So before this offer was tabled, in my mind, they would have been all right with at least tabling that offer, wanting to make sure that no preseason games were missed. Is this going to be enough time for the players to get ready? I mean, they, I, I know for the last number of years, there's only been the two preseason games, and, and they're going to try to maintain that. We're, they're a week late. Uh, is, is missing that week uh, going to be problematic for the players to be game ready for the opening game of the season? It won't matter for Calgary and Edmonton because they've been practicing the whole time because yeah. of the Alberta yeah. labor law. But I think we could see, you know, a little bit more, um, you know, not high-level play, let's say, uh, for some of these preseason games because we haven't had the practices. But in reality, it was only a few days missed. So I think the veterans will be ready to go and the preseason games will just be really important for the bottom of the roster guys or the guys battling for starting spots. Yeah, I mean, you look at Major League Baseball, and they reduced the size of their preseason schedule. And uh, and the players complained about that. I mean, because they said, hey, we're not ready. Uh, and, you know, because the, there is prep time. I mean, it's, you know, the, the, these guys have to get ready and get in physical shape. And of course, I know they report to training camp in, in great physical shape these days. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you've got to work on this aspect and this aspect and say, okay, I'm ready to go. Uh, and I'm just wondering if there's going to be enough time for them to get that done. But I think your point's well taken. That puts added pressure on the players right now. So for instance, on the Tiger Cat situation, uh, you better show something at this game tomorrow night at Tim Horton Field if you're trying to make this this team because you don't have a whole lot of time to impress the coaching staff, do you? 
That's right. You need to be ready to go. And it's just part of pro football, right? It's an uncertain sport. You can be cut at any time. and Different situations can happen throughout the season that you have to deal with. So going into this, players needed to know that they needed to show up to camp in shape, ready to go, and that there was a potential for a work stoppage. That communication was sent down from the executive of the CFL Players Association multiple times. So the players needed to make sure that they were ready for this and the ones who are more prepared or can deal with that situation will flourish. Well, I know it's a baseball phrase, but it applies here. Let's play ball. And that's the good news. This is going to be a season. Uh, and by the way, for the fans that want to get some details about this and what's happening with those other rosters, just do what I did. You go to Three Down Nation, and uh, all the information you need uh, about the Canadian Football League is there for you. Justin, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for uh, shedding some light on this. Really appreciate the time today. You bet, Bill. Let's play some ball, man. You betcha. Take care. Justin Dunk, uh, founder of Three Down Nation, and of course, the sports anchor at CHGH TV. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.